Welcome everybody, welcome to St Paul's Cathedral. Very nice to see you for this second of our series of autumn uh, events. Uh, this evening, the subject of love. Can I just say for those of you who haven't been here before how uh, we play things. Um, there's going to be um, our two distinguished speakers who I'll introduce in a moment are going to come up and uh, talk for 15 minutes or so, um, after which um, we will have questions from the floor and have a dialogue. The way that questions work is that you should have um, pieces of paper, uh, access to pieces of paper, and would you, and actually as soon as you can, as soon as you thought of them, write down a question and hold them up, and they will be collected, if you can indicate, um, to the wandsman. And what will happen is those pieces of paper will go to the back um, and a very clever system where um, they will be lodged into the computer which will be um, transfer transmitted to my computer here. So I will see all the questions you're asking and then I'll weave them into our discussion. So if you could do that, that would be terrific. Better brief questions than really long ones. Um, we're going to end promptly at 8, um, after which... Uh, there will be uh, uh, five or six minutes of book signing. Um, we will also take a collection. Look, there's a question already. Check this out. That's fantastic. <laughs> there will be um, a collection afterwards. And, and we're taking a collection this evening for uh, the charity Kids Company, which uh, you may well know, which is, does terrific work um, in London and elsewhere. So... Welcome. It gives me um, loads of pleasure to uh, introduce Oliver James, for him to be here this evening. He's, um, I'm sure, well known to many of you, a clinical psychologist, broadcaster, and the author of best-selling books, which include They F You Up, How to Survive Family Life, and Affluenza, How to Be Successful and Stay Sane. It says, you have col it says in my notes here that you have columns in six national newspapers. No, I have had. Oh, have had. Sounds greedy to me. Um, worked as a clinical psychologist um, at the NHS Specialist uh, Psychiatric Hospital for people with severe personality disorders and is well known on the telly and on the radio, uh, not least for bringing Peter Mandelson to tears. So there we are. You're very welcome indeed. Nice to see you. <laughs> Lucy Winkett, what can I say? Um, she is now between jobs. Um, she is, uh, was here for 150 years <laughs> and is now going to be rector of St. James Piccadilly on Thursday or Thursday. Um, she is a regular broadcaster on Radio 4's Thought for the Day and author of a best-selling Our Sound is Our Wound, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book this year. There's lots of other stuff it says here about her, but I'm just going to summarise that by saying she's a very good egg and one of the best priests I've ever worked with. Nice to have you here again, Lucy. Would you please welcome our panel? <clears throat> Welcome to this uh, awesome setting. 
from my standpoint as a psychologist, love is absolutely central to not just well-being, but to the very most profound elements of who we are. And it begins before birth, and then when you're a baby, and then as a toddler, and then as a small child, those years between naught and six, the research has now shown, are absolutely critical for three key features that everybody here has to a greater or lesser degree. And the first one is what's known as the sense of self, which is, in a baby, the sense that this is my tummy, which is empty, which is hurting, and needs to be filled. I am feeling lonely or scared because it's dark. And in order to develop a sense of self, love is absolutely critical. And this is very well demonstrated. Babies who, for whatever reason, are not being cared by someone who's able to express love towards them. And the way that love is expressed is through tuning in to the baby's needs, being able to almost anticipate before the baby knows it that it's hungry, that it needs to be picked up, that it needs to be changed, and so on. All those very basic, simple acts of nurture express the love. And through that love, slowly build up a consistent feeling that I am me, as simple as that, very basic. And people who don't have a sense of self in prospective longitudinal studies where they followed people and observed them being mothered very small and then continued to study the people well into their 30s, if they weren't loved, they're much more likely to have problems with identity, what's known technically as personality disorders. The commonest symptom being dissociation, where they feel at one removed from themselves a lot of the time. It's actually established as a pattern of electrochemistry of brain waves and even actual degrees of growth of different bits of the brain so that uh, your electrochemical brain thermostat is set by the quality of the care you have in very early life and that continues as you become a toddler, so that the psychologist John Bowlby developed a theory called attachment theory, whose premise was that 
toddlers, six, well, six months to three years of age, is a sensitive period in which we're very acutely aware of needing a particular caregiver or caregivers, people who are familiar with our idiosyncratic ways, the kind of food we have, how we like to be picked up, all those little things that those of you who've had children will know all about. And if the care isn't what Bowlby called available, which breaks down into accessible, actually the person being there reliably, uh, or responsive, that is actually reacting to the toddler when the toddler needs reacting to, uh, then the child develops what's called an insecure pattern of attachment, which is true of at least 30% of children at any one time. And again, the way in which the parent uses love to build a secure pattern of attachment is in very practical stuff. It's about providing the uh, soldiers with the right amount of butter on them, um, with the boiled egg boiled to the right degree of gooeyness and all the rest of it, that each toddler individually has a different feeling about. And it's done with love. And then you come to the period between three and six. And unfortunately, a lot of what I'm saying is, is, is not what the parenting books recommend. Uh, a lot of parenting books now are essentially parent-centered and almost reactive against the idea of love. They treat the baby and the toddler as the beast in the nursery which needs to be tamed and as quickly as possible brought under control so that it can fit in with the family. Not good, not good for the sense of self, not conducive to a secure pattern of attachment. And when you get to punishment, in inverted commas, between three and six, in which the whole thing becomes even more explicitly parent and adult and society-centered, again, a terrifyingly high proportion of parents still hit their children, something that really should never be necessary. Because the way in which the values of a parent are passed down to a child can be either done through coercion, hitting or shouting or naughty steps or making the child feel like it's a bad person. Or, and if you do that, it's true that to some degree the child will take on board the parent's values. But unfortunately, it's a robotic, what's technically known as introjection. So the child really doesn't understand at all why it has to do these things. It does it out of fear. Uh, and the child often loses creativity. Uh, it's often very angry and will, at every opportunity, find ways to uh, mess things up for the parent and for the siblings and for other children. Sadly, a very, very common experience to be punished in those ways. 
Whereas if love is used, as I can say from my own experience, is certainly the case with my father, and my mother was quite depressed and irritable and ratty a lot of the time. My father did manage to convey to me the difference between right and wrong, the sort of things that he felt I needed to do, mainly through love. And in the end, the reason you know your children will actually behave in the ways that you want and uh, do so for the right reason because they've made a choice is ultimately out of love. In the end, if you really have got a good relationship with your child, it's out of love that it'll decide that it doesn't want to behave appallingly. All that I've said is now increasingly being shown to be biologically based. That is, this electrochemical thermostat, the brain waves, and the different sizes of bits of brain are the direct result of love. To take a hideous op opposite example of the opposite of love, a woman who was sexually abused when small on average has 5% less of a key bit of the brain known, of the, known as the hippocampus or the amygdala as another region that's adversely affected by that ghastly experience. And the other way, put it the other way around, uh, Sue Gerhardt in her recent book, The Selfish Society, provides chapter and verse on how toddlers' brains, the sizes of different bits of it, are different according to whether or not, essentially, love has been provided. And her previous book was actually entitled Why Love Matters. Another example of what happens if love is not provided is that the hormone which we secrete when we experience danger, cortisol, is dysregulated. Normally high levels, but sometimes, uh, well, if it's high levels, you're in a jittery, stressed out state. It's essentially what, what it means to be stressed is to be permanently having high cortisol levels, very bad for your physical health, but not great for your mental health either. And again, if love is provided, cortisol levels don't go through the ceiling and you're a much cooler, calmer customer. Unfortunately, Babies whose mothers are depressed or for whatever reason are unable to tune into the baby. Perhaps the baby's preterm, perhaps the baby's got colic, and it's totally difficult at the best of times with the best will in the world to tune into difficult babies, of whom about a third are difficult. Not for genetic reasons, I would stress. Interestingly, the Human Genome Project is, in, is proving almost certainly that very little of our psychology of why one sibling is different from another or why one social class is different from another or why one ethnic group is different from another 
is not due to genes. It's a fascinating uh, fact that has so far not been very widely uh, in the media. Um, but babies are born different, and about a third can be very difficult. And if they're very difficult, or if the mother, for some reason, can't tune in, perhaps because of her own early infancy, then the cortisol levels of that baby will be dysregulated. And subsequently, if the baby is put in inadequate substitute care, so it isn't actually a problem for a baby if its mother works. The key thing is who looks after the baby instead. It needs, in a sense, a substitute mother. Ideally, perhaps, its partner, uh, the, the, the baby's um, father or partner of the mother. And if it's not that, then if it's a nanny, that's, that can work. Uh, but if something like nursery care is used, uh, cortisol levels are much more likely to, be, to rise. The amount of love available in nursery care, I'm sorry to say, is not nearly as much as it needs to be in the great majority of settings. Perhaps only about 10% of childcare is what's technically called high quality. And the net result is that within, when studies have been done, within an hour of an 18-month-old being put in daycare, its cortisol levels have doubled compared with what they were when they were measured at home. That's the importance of love, the power of love. It profoundly affects your brain. I think the only other things I'm going to say at this stage <laughs> um, are going to be about um, adult love. And I'll say just two things. One is a really big modern problem, the problem of self-love. We become a much more Americanized society than we were even 30 years ago. And in America, one of the most unfortunate developments is the what I call men in skirts feminism. The feminism that I uh, I'm old enough to remember in the 70s being part of men's groups in which we sat around saying how we should be different. Um, that idea that, that feminism is as much about men changing as women having opportunities that men have uh, has not been adopted in America or here. And instead, a very ugly habit that men already had which is the me, 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 look at me narcissism, has become endemic in both American and British women. So that in the 60s, all men, 40% of men, had strong narcissistic tendencies. Surprise, surprise. And that's the sort of thing that feminism might have helped us to get over ourselves and start thinking a bit about other people and not being so insecure because narcissism is essentially that you feel worthless and helpless, and so you exaggerate in the opposite direction and say, aren't I wonderful? Look at me. Um, well, unfortunately, only, uh, whereas only 15% of women in the 60s 
suffered from narcissism, what 40% of men did. By the time you get to the mid-90s, 40% of American women also suffer from narcissism. And that, of course, is not real self-love. The real self-love that we're all, I hope, looking for is something very, very different. It's something hopefully grounded ultimately on being able to successfully relate to other people and to be of value to each other and to the community. That's where real self-love comes from. And of course, that originates in having been loved by your mother. So I would want to throw out there the importance of real self-love as opposed to the gruesome narcissism that we see day in, day out on the television. The other simple point I'd make, which is really makes me want to weep, is interestingly the same statistics. Uh, in the 60s, 40% of women said they would love a man, they would marry a man if all else was right about him without loving him. Whereas that had dropped to only 15% by the mid-90s. So, interestingly, during the period in which there was a massive increase in the divorce rate or separation, there was also a massively increased premium placed by women on love in marriage. A dreadful irony. And I think that tells us something. It tells us that love, as I'm sure Lucy will also say, is the foundation of life. And it is absolutely the foundation of adult relationships, whether or not children are involved, romantic relationships. Uh, isn't it terribly sad that we live in a society where so many people's relationships break down, so many people are desperate to be with a partner who they love, and yet this is the time in history when that has never been less likely to happen. Thank you. Addressing the subject of love, I speak as a priest, but perhaps more importantly, as a human being. As a human being and as a priest, I'm learning all the time about what it is to love and to be loved. And as with most profound learning processes, I also realize that the more I love, the less I know about love. And I learn too about the mystery that loving is hard and is closely linked to grief and loss. Daring to love also brings me close to the parts of myself I would rather not know about, 
my capacity for betrayal, for cowardice, for jealousy and selfishness. Love is, in short, a dangerous and volatile and foundational aspect of life in the world, and we domesticate or contain love at our peril. On this tack, I want also to acknowledge right at the beginning of my comments that there's a very great hazard that religious people encounter when we talk about love. Sometimes we adopt a kind of sing-song piousness as we rather too quickly and glibly talk about the love of God and how much God loves us and we love God. And it can easily sound as if everything in the garden is too rosy. In my experience, that kind of glib talking about love which sometimes happens in Christianity as in other religions, leaves most people wondering whether having a Christian faith automatically means that we resign from being members of the human race. As well as learning from St. Paul that love is patient and kind, I want to say too that it's impossible, it's messy, and it's often absurd. Love can bring meaning to our lives in a way that little else can. It also, as Oliver has mentioned, for want of it, make us the loneliest we've ever been. Love of a person when we're in love can make us almost delirious, elated, capable of behaving wildly out of character. And love of our child can lead us to make sacrifices we never imagined possible before they arrived in our lives. There's a common way, too, of describing love which absolves us from any responsibility that love is somehow an autocratic force which coerces us to behave in certain ways, that its influence on us is out of our control. It's this struggle, the link between the love that we experience or don't experience, and then the choices that follow from that, that links love to ethics and discussions about behavior. Learning to love is a lifelong task, because as we go through life, we will get hurt, become afraid, and also start to come to terms with the person we really are. Loving and being loved in the real world as adults challenges our fantasies about ourselves and what we're like. The New Testament is full of stories and sayings and poems about love. In the first letter of John, the basic statement is made, God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. An umbilical link here between love and life itself. There is a vivacity, a heightened attentiveness, a quality of aliveness that is closely related to love and loving. I've met many people, sometimes damaged by their own experiences, sometimes themselves on the cusp of a lifelong commitment, who say something like, I have a lot of love to give, but I'm not quite sure how to give it. The circumstances into which we're born, the cruelty or neglect of others, the fear we feel, can sometimes lead us to build our own prisons and unassailable walls around our hearts, the organ traditionally associated with our loving. It is a lifelong work to learn to love, as I've said, because our fear of one another and our fear of the truth about ourselves works as a closing mechanism keeping us away from risk, and keeping us, as we think, safe. Love, I want to suggest, is exactly the opposite of that closing mechanism. 
It is part of our constant struggle to remain open, despite the risk, despite the odds. The Franciscan monk and theologian Richard Rohr wrote recently that the three most powerful experiences in opening ourselves spiritually are love, suffering, and failure. We can't help but be open, he argues, when we experience these things. But I detect a more common phenomenon with regard to love, and perhaps I'm saying something similar here to Oliver, but I'm saying it in a different way, because I call it the Dalek phenomenon. Ever since I was a child, I've loved Doctor Who, and my reading of the iconic enemy of the Doctor is an evocative and creative expression of hurt beings. We can, as human beings, become like the Daleks, Our brittle, monotonous voices repeat defensive mantras about ourselves and our relationships from behind a metal shell. But inside, there is a frightened and intensely vulnerable, beating, creaturely heart. The central theme of the Christian tradition is love. Much is in the Bible about loving God. But what does that actually mean? Does it mean sitting in a church, trying to imagine God, and then trying to conjure up feelings about this abstract being? What on earth could it feel like to love God? In some ways, this really doesn't make any sense. So the Christian tradition personifies this love in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the ones that Christians call the Christ, the one anointed by God. Jesus talked a lot about love, according to the sayings we have in the New Testament, and more than that, most of the time what he was saying about it was trying to explain more about what he'd been doing, which was essentially being love and peace and healing in a selfish and fragmented world. The Christian tradition says about love, if you want to know what God is like, and God is love, if you want to know what God is like, look at that human being. Really look, and you will see more than a good and generous person, you will see the image and likeness of God. The nature of God as love is expressed in this human life and reveals a force, according to Christians, that underpins the universe. That's essentially a longing for wholeness, a dynamic that moves towards connection rather than fragmentation, a bliss, if you like, that's characterized also by joy. This is perhaps what is meant by God is love. But the Christian tradition is also characterized not by an otherworldly track towards an out-of-body bliss. Christian tradition's understanding of love is that Jesus willingly walked the path of crucifixion and that that was the seminal moment in expression of love. Jesus' life and death is the gospel writer's story, an act of selfless love, an act of sacrifice for the sake of humanity. The meaning of the cross has been hotly debated down the centuries. No doubt that will continue. And it will never be an uncontroversial symbol, speaking as it does as much of human cruelty and violence as of love. The action of Jesus of Nazareth in taking this path to crucifixion, Christians believe, reveals the nature of God as love. The theological term, kenosis. The nature of God is simply to be given to be poured out, to be endlessly given, 
to be paradoxically supremely free and also bound at the mercy of another. It's this pouring out of love that Christians will believe is at the heart of reality of all that is. There's something here perhaps we can recognize from our own experience. When we love, especially when we're in love, we place ourselves at the mercy of another. They can hurt us, and sometimes they really do. They can also help to direct our life's course, and at its most profound, a loving relationship where each remains in trust at the mercy of the other leads us paradoxically to a freedom to be truly ourselves. This dynamic is evident in Christian theology. In Christ, says St. Paul, there is no male or female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. This is what Christians think they're doing when they celebrate the Eucharist together. They're experiencing that God who is at the mercy of humanity, who willingly puts God's self into the hands of people, being bound in order to be free. This being at the mercy of another might all sound very well, but is, it is colossally hard and brings many dangers when it's not mutual. Contrary to our modern obsession with only the erotic form of love, in the New Testament, the word used for love is predominantly agape. Its central expression is in Jesus' summary of the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Agape love is seeking your neighbor's welfare, even your enemy neighbor's welfare. But how far this then leads to an ethic of sacrifice, or how far this includes self-love, is itself debated. Philia, the love of friendship, is also used, but much less in the New Testament, and eros, the love of desire, not at all. And the writers of one strand of Christian spirituality, mysticism, dismiss the categorizations altogether. Teresa of Avila, the 16th century first woman to be proclaimed a doctor of the church, insisted there is only one love. Our spirituality, our physicality, our emotional lives can't be separated out and categorized neatly they may be for discussion, but the truth is we are one person and all of us is involved in all of it. In less theological terms, what the central story of Christianity, Jesus being crucified by a frightened world, what that expresses is the complexity of love, the ambiguity of love, together with the deep and unwelcome close associations love has with anger, jealousy, violence and cruelty. In this story, it is that a violent and fearful religious establishment and political establishment could not respond to the shocking and selfless actions of this peaceful, loving person who taught others to be free. A modern example of agape love is to be found in the civil rights movement in the United States in the 20th century in the declaration of Martin Luther King Jr. when he wrote, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour. Drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us up 
and we will still love you. Set this tradition of love alongside our own modern public expressions and discussions of love, and there is a contrast. The actions of self-giving lives are celebrated in a secular way in our society. I came across an example recently. I had reason to look at the annual Pride of Britain Awards, for example, which celebrate the often heroic lives of carers, people who have acted selflessly in a crisis or have given their lives to peacemaking or community building. Their stories individually are astonishing and humbling. Perhaps it's a comment on the modern church that these selfless lives are celebrated not so much by religious communities, but by tabloid newspapers sponsored by supermarket chains and daytime TV. The central practical teaching of Christianity to love your neighbor as yourself is given some kind of expression in a society where the majority of people live their lives without reference to organized religion. In the Christian tradition, though, the source of love, the reason we love, the explanation for the love we simply find within us is part of the story. Why do we love? The Christian response to this set of questions is that God is love and that God loved humans first. So all human loving is in the context of and in response to that love. My final comments are about self-love. In the Christian tradition for too long, we've not understood the part of the biblical commandment that says, love your neighbor as yourself. To learn to love ourselves is part of the Christian tradition. But it's traditionally been couched in terms that are selfish and self-centered and not to be encouraged. This has been very damaging. Because what we mean by the love of God is a message that the Christian church has struggled to inhabit within its own structures and certainly has struggled to communicate. This love means that each human being created in the image of God is infinitely precious. That each person that you and I are of infinite value and this value is intrinsic and irreducible. It's not the same as telling ourselves that we can treat ourselves to expensive perfume because we're worth it. And it's not the same as a jaw-jutting defiance that proclaims, you have to take me as I am because I'm not changing. These defiant mantras, I would suggest, are repetitive, monotone Dalek speak. The creaturely vulnerable person inside holds a deep, and almost inevitably irretrievable knowledge, I would want to say planted in us by God, that we're astonishingly and truly uniquely precious, and that there was no mistake in creation when you were made. This confidence that we are loved, that is the heart of the gospel, paradoxically does not make humans, does not have to make humans narcissistic, but grateful. It does not have to turn us inwards on ourselves, but it turns us outwards towards each other. The questions that Christianity raises about love lead to an understanding of love that can't be commodified or atomized or narrowed into lust in an attempt to sell a new car or shampoo. It's not founded on either a needy anxiety 
or a false pride in ourselves. The love that is at the heart of the Christian teaching is based on our acceptance of God's gift of ourselves to ourselves in the expectation that we will then in turn give ourselves away. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Lucy. <clears throat> Before I start to um, draw your questions off my computer screen, I just encourage you to start scribbling and to hold your hands up and um, for your questions to come through to me. I think the first thing I'd like to ask, and I'm going to ask um, Oliver first, if I may, um, is, is about this business of um, the practical um, nature of love, which um, your boiled egg example was a, um, was a good example of. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could talk about the role of, of a more sentimental approach as well as that. So you, you didn't talk about kissing and cuddling and tickling and that sort of thing. You, you quite firmly spoke in, in practical terms. So I wonder if I could perhaps get you to talk about a more, the more sentimental side of of love and, it, and its role in, in formation? Well, sentimental, I don't... I, I, I'm not sure I would call hugging sentimental. Um, you're right, though, I didn't mention that, but I suppose I was sort of taking that as a given because I wanted to try and, you know, in, in, in a sense, condense it into these little gestures of thoughtfulness that lie behind or that express the love. Um, but of course there is enormous amount of evidence that uh, little babies and toddlers and small children want to be hugged um, and that evidence is is, is is very much, it starts, in terms of the scientific history of that evidence, it starts with studies of animals and of, of other mammals. And there are some uh, very, you know, you know, uh, you know for, for people who find animal experiments upsetting, worrying, um, examples where they've been able to find, for example, a hundred monkeys who are bad mothers and take their babies away from the, uh, those mothers and give them to a hundred monkeys who are good mothers um, and then swap the good mothers' babies and give them to the bad mothers. And sure enough, as you might expect, the, uh, the consequence is very adverse for the uh, for, for, the, for, the, for the babies who started off with good mothers and went to bad mothers. And the key factor is the amount of licking, I mean, okay, for, for which read kissing in, in the animal kingdom, um, much less cuddling, much less grooming, and so on. And uh, as is a physical thing, um, so I take your point, um, that physical contact is a very important part of it. And I, I always remember 
interviewing a convicted violent man many years ago and he was talking about his relationship with his wife and just saying that his wife would try and, you know, he, he understood about sex, but he, he, he was a very nice man, actually. He was, a, he was, a, he was in prison for being a... Um, uh, he was a, a hooligan for Mil, in the Millwall hooligans. Uh, but he's actually a terribly amusing, sweet chap, but he was just terribly sadly, had not been loved when he was small, and his wife would try and embrace him, and he said that he just felt like a brick, or he felt like a sort of encased in steel. He felt frigid and frozen when that happened. It, it made him feel very uncomfortable. He didn't understand it. It was as though he said, as though it was his chemistry was wrong. Um, and that's what the, the studies, I mean, the studies of monkeys, they, of course, they're able to then, you know, do infinite variations of that model in which they then show that the female offspring um, grow up to be mothers and indeed become bad mothers if they had bad mothers and then they can go down a generation and swap them around again and so it goes on and they can show in a very straightforward way that has nothing whatever to do with genes and everything to do with nurture that depending on how much you were cuddled and licked and groomed by your mummy monkey you are then able to do that and naturally do that with your with your uh, offspring. Can I just have a supplementary on that before, which is um, in terms of our society uh, and the sort of fear that we now have of touching children or the sort of stranger danger and all that sort of stuff that we have and whether that very different culture you think uh, has an effect upon, upon children. That's obviously there the affection that they receive, not just from their parents, but from a, you know, the wider community and so Well, it's, it's one of the things that I identified in one of my books was that the simple fact, based on the World Health Organization's very, very thorough studies of prevalence of mental illness around the world, that in the UK and in the US, we are twice as likely to suffer a mental illness as people living in six different mainland Western European nations, the big six that you'd expect, Germany, Spain, Italy, and so on. Now, um, to some extent, I, I, well, to a very large extent, I put that down to the fact that we're so much more materialistic uh, and that we've had uh, the wrong kind of political economy for the last 30 years, including Blatcher as well as Thatcher. Um, and uh, it has made us fixated on having rather than being, and we conflate real needs with confected wants, wants confected by advertisers, such, uh, and that is shown statistically by the fact that uh, in America they've spent four times more per head of population for the last 40 or 50 years on advertising which is, advertising really is the devil's work. I mean, advertising is deliberately setting out to try and persuade people of something that is just not true about a product in order to get you to get rid of your existing product and get a new one. Um, 
four times more spent in the USA compared with continental mainland Western Europe and twice as much we spend, we've had twice as much spent on us, getting us, misleading us in that way through advertising uh, for the last 40 years compared with continental mainland Western Europe. However, my point, which I'm taking a long time to get to, is that of course, as anybody here will know, when you go to continental Europe, I got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, you go to continental mainland Europe and wherever you go, people will be delighted to see your little child and will snuggle it and go, ah, I need a bambino and all that stuff. Uh, it's a cliche, but it's really true. And it's so strikingly not true in this country. I think the stranger danger stuff is a load of old rubbish drummed up by our horrendously perverted press. Um, and just sells papers and feeds into a very unfortunate streak of British history, I suppose, a British culture which comes out of British history, where we, you know, particularly in the ruling classes, we're very much discouraged from expressing affection towards each other physically. And I think, well, anyway, I'm not an expert on that, but you can, you can see where I'm going with that. And, I, uh, you know, yes, um, it, it, you know, I think that the stranger danger thing is a, is a, is a kind of um, really just symbolic of our unease with, uh, with children. We're not, you know, the, the UNICEF, UNICEF study that was made such a fuss about a few years ago that showed that we're bottom of a league table when it comes to children. Uh, you know, that... So yes, I personally think that has a lot to do with Thatcherism and Blatcherism and massive inequality, all sorts of things like that, structural things. But it also has to do with our cultural history and would have been true probably before Mrs. Thatcher came and wreaked her havoc. Um, and uh, yes, you know, it's a long tradition that goes way back. Um, I don't know if you wanted to come into that, but... I, I suppose I... I'm, say, I'm saying a similar thing in a slightly different way in the sense that at least as powerful on our own sense of ourselves and how we relate to one another as the political, legal, economic arrangements that we make are the cultural stories that we tell and the myths and the icons and the images with which we're surrounded. And I think we do live in, an, I, I, you can't say uniquely because we haven't lived in other centuries, but we live in a very anxious society. And just as you were speaking, Oliver, I was thinking about the icon of the mother, um, which uh, in Christianity, of course, is the virgin mother, which is an unachievable goal for women. Um, and so, it, you know, to, to be virginal and maternal at the same time was a pretty big ask for Christian women. Um, and that's been a very strong uh, icon that's been held up for women, particularly um, in, in countries which have been Christian. But I think that now there is so much advice given to mothers. I, I'm not a mother myself, but I, you know, when I speak to my, my generation of mothers um, in their late 30s and early 40s, they are um, almost without exception pretty anxious about all of the mistakes they've made and they haven't touched their children enough or they have to, they've smothered them or whatever it might be and now they've been told they could have been drinking during their pregnancy that was the latest piece of advice so they're all feeling a bit sore about that and you know there's, <laughs> there's a kind of 
endless, uh, endless role of, of anxiety um, in our public conversations about who mothers are. And, and it's, it's salutary to hear that that is such a foundational and important relationship. But I think perhaps the, uh, the, the, you know, the dissemination of quite complex information in the studies that psychologists do, perhaps it's been uh, a bit of a running commentary um, in a sense that has made women and men, but particularly women, very anxious. So therefore our love becomes uh, not based on that confidence we were talking about in our different ways. That to know that you're loved means that you are able to give love more, um, more easily. So fewer of us, I would want to suggest, uh, have that confidence, that absolute confidence that we are loved. So therefore the anxiety increases. And I completely agree with your comments on advertising, which I think are, is, is absolutely based on our anxiety and our um, competitiveness. Lucy, can I just ask you something about your Teresa of Avia um, quote of there is only one love? Mm. Um, because I'm interested in the way in which you know, traditionally, Christianity has divided love into different sorts of love, um, some of which has a sort of more physical or more sexual, the erotic and so forth, and then some of which which is social or brotherly and so forth. And part of the reason I guess it does that is that there's a sort of fear of, of one bleeding into the other and so forth. And, you know, when Teresa of Avila says there is only one love, I mean, if you take that and push all those together, then there is a sort of anxiety about the way in which that might sexualize things you don't want to sexualize or, you know, and there's of course that famous um, uh, sculpture of her which is always, you know, deemed to be both prayerful and erotic at the same time and mm. so forth. I wonder if... Mm. I mean, one of the most dangerous uh, strands of Christian spirituality is mysticism and the mystics of whom Teresa of Avila was one very definitely express their religious uh, sentiments and their feelings and their love in erotic terms sometimes and other times not um, and there is something to me appealing about that there's a there's a it's a holistic way of looking at ourselves and accepting that we are one person so for me the categorization can only be temporary for the purposes of discussion. So you can talk about agape, which the New Testament does, but the truth is that we are much more uh, complex and ambiguous people than those categories would suggest. And so, you know, in a, in a, uh, in a sense of, of promoting a holistic spirituality, then all of us has to be involved in that love towards God, including our er eroticism. Thank you. I'll, I'll just comment on sexuality. I think it goes alongside what we were saying, that uh, it, it's a curious thing to me the way that, I mean, in my, I'm 56 years old, so I'm old enough to remember a time when everybody was terribly jumpy about sex. Um, and then, obviously, young people today are much more relaxed about it, it would seem, and certainly start having it younger. Um, and supposedly everybody's now kind of much more liberated and all the rest of it, but yet uh, there are all sorts of signs actually, and there's a, there's a book by Brett Carr called Sex and the Psyche which shows this 
the extent to which actually people are incredibly uneasy about sex. And, it's, and I think that British people, um, and I think there's also a whole bundle of evidence that, again, the mainland continental Europeans are way more relaxed about it, just as they're much more relaxed about touching children and, and, and expressing themselves physically towards children. Uh, but in this country, I mean, I actually recently, I do a column in The Guardian at the moment, not six columns, and um, uh, in the family page. And I was amazed when the editor came back to me the other day when I sent in a column about childhood sexuality, which is a very well-established phenomenon. It's uh, been studied extensively, and whether you call it sexuality or, whether, or not doesn't really matter. The point is, you know, uh, the, the great majority of children play doctors and nurses, and I'll show me yours and you show me mine. And, uh, and um, it's a, you know, it wasn't at all controversial in my mind, this kind of, but, the, but she came back to me that for Guardian parents, this might be a bit alarming. Which seems absolutely bizarre. I tried to think what would have happened if I'd sent it to the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> But that just shows how, how, you know, if even the Guardian would be worried by that, what kind of society do we live in? It's just weird, frankly. <laughs> I heard something, um, Elizabeth Foy told me something very good about sex and prayer the other day. She's sitting up at the back that she'd heard. And that um, sex and prayer have two things in common. Um, people think both are all about technique when they're not. And people think other people are doing much more of it than they actually are. <laughs> I rather like that. Um, sorry, there's a question here. Why is the church so focused on sex rather than love? I'll take that as an a, a, a admonishment of, 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 of that. You can pick that up if you like. But I'm going to, um, I'm going to push on to something um, slightly different. Um, I think uh, there's a number of questions here that are, that are talking about how if people have, and I think this is directed to you, Oliver, if they have, um, as it were, dysfunctional childhoods, how they can learn to love uh, later in life. Is, is there some, is there, are, there, are there techniques, or is there, is there a way of getting over that, uh, that difficulty? How does one go about that? Well, most definitely. Um, and as I was at pains to point out, these things are not to do with genes, you know. Um, your early experience establishes a thermostatic setting, but I very deliberately use the idea of a thermostat because the whole point about a thermostat is that you can change it. Now, obviously, if you take the hooligan I referred to earlier, who you know was having great difficulty in being able to tolerate somebody showing him love or being able to show it back, it is very, very difficult for somebody as damaged as that to recover, and it's only going to be limited, perhaps, the extent to which you will be able to recover, and it's no good pretending otherwise, um, in terms of certainly what, what conventional therapy has to offer. Although, and, and the trouble with therapy is it's terribly, terribly erratic. You know, some therapists are very good with certain kind of cases and not others. Some, it, it's almost not so much to do with the ideology of the therapist as to do with the person and the fit between the client and the therapist. And it's, it's, a, it's a frightfully uncertain area of therapy, but undoubtedly, I do know many people who have been hugely helped by therapy. But interestingly, um, 
uh, so, so broadly speaking, though, it is possible to convert the lead of childhood maltreatment into the gold of a playful, loving, cooperative, productive life. It is possible to do that. And the most remarkable example that I had of that in, in my life experience was in going around the world for one of my books to visit seven different countries and I spent a, mu a month in each and I um, interviewed about 40 people per country and what happened in each country every so, you know, or around the place I, I would come up with maybe a maximum of one or two people per country where I think, oh no, I think I've got one here and it would be somebody who radiated self-confidence, comfort in their skin, was clearly living a, a, a really, it was a, you really would have liked to have been that person as somebody who's actually in the zone. Um, unfortunately, psychology doesn't have very good words for what it would mean to be, I mean, it's, it's something much more than just mentally healthy or normal or sane. It's, and I, it's something that fascinates me, this subject. What is it? actually, what would it mean to be all right, should we just say. Um, but anyway, I'd meet these people. And the first thing that would become apparent very quickly was that they had suffered some absolutely appalling experience in their life. Either something in their childhood or just a dreadful life-threatening illness or a, a tragic social death of some kind, their wife going off with their best friend or something like that, completely prolapsed. And they seemed to have had some kind of experience that had made them wake up and smell the coffee. And of course, for everyone who has that kind of experience, there's a whole lot of others who've just become bitter or vicious or depressed or whatever. So I don't know, and I can't tell you what the difference between them was. And the other thing, though, which I had not expected, and in fact, if I'd been had my head switched, you know, brain working, I would have realized that that was going to be the case. Interestingly, there is good scientific evidence that people who have some kind of religious ob observance in the loosest sense, you could almost say spiritual observance, uh, a daily, uh, um, at least a once weekly uh, observance of some kind, there's really strong body of evidence proving this, are statistically significantly more likely to be mentally healthy. And indeed, every single time I would think, oh, we've got one here, I'd talk to them more and I'd realize this is, I'm in the presence of that glow that comes from the tiny minority of people who I suspect keep the rest of us sane. Um, and, um, uh, and, and I would go further, and as I got further around the world, I went to New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, Shanghai, Moscow, Copenhagen, and New York. As I got further around the world, I increasingly realized that it was absolutely inevitable when I would, I would then say to them, by the way, you know, do you have any sort of loosely speaking, you know, spiritual practice of some kind? Quite a few of them were, were um, conventional religious church go. Uh, some of them were kind of doing something like transcendental meditation related to some kind of, um, you know, loosely theological ideas but not necessarily involving any, any particular deities um, but it was amazing <laughs> so 
I, I feel, I mean, there's a very interesting um, method for anybody who's depressed, which I've done, because I've suffered from mild depression uh, in parts of my life, um, which is called the Hoffman process. And one of the key factors in the Hoffman process, where you go away for seven days and are kind of locked away, and, and a big part of it is you're forced to confront your early childhood. But another big part of it is they talk about the light. They talk in a very, in this godless post-Dawkins society, they have to avoid being in any way, you know, explicitly in any way connected with religion. But they are really talking about spiritual, the spirit, and they talk about your spiritual self. And they talk about, they don't talk about your soul, but that's what they're really talking about. So I am increasingly convinced as I get older that from the evidence of those people I met around the world, that, there's, that, that, that there has to be a spiritual dimension to it if you're going to turn the lead of your childhood maltreatment into... There has to be a big picture bit somewhere, to put it like that in the crudest, most crass terms, um, in, in, in anybody who succeeds in, in doing that, that, that amazing thing of turning lead into gold. I've got a load of questions for you here, but I don't know if you wanted to Go respond ahead. to that. Fine. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I, it is interesting, and there's a number here, um, and that perhaps I'll summarise the number, that, um, that when uh, the, uh, the psychologist talks about love, talks about mother, and when the Christian talks about love, we'll talk about father with God and so forth. And I just noticed that was a really interesting thing. I'm sure you can pile into that one, Lucy. <laughs> Personally, I rarely talk about father, actually. Um, I mean, it, yes, it, it's, a very, it's a very good question. It's an obvious question. The foundational Christian prayer is our father. And the relationship that shines out of all four Gospels is Jesus' intimate relationship with the unseen God, who he calls not just Father, but Abba, more intimate form. And there, there seems to be a kind of constant conversation between Jesus and God on those terms. I, I think in a modern context, the parental language that we use about God, uh, and I'll come on to Mother in just a moment, but the parental language we use about God, therefore making us children and God Father, is at least as confronting and difficult as it is um, enriching and we've obviously you know I mean it's it's a kind of it's an obvious thing to say that Christianity is a, a patriarchal religion and has over many centuries uh, come alongside a patriarchal uh, structure of society that was based on the Roman household co codes where there was clearly an educated man at the top of a triangle and then uneducated men and women slaves at the bottom of that triangle. And I think Christianity has struggled to uh, liberate itself from that historical model. There is, a, there is an argument that some church historians put forward that uh, the mistake if you like, the, the historical mistake that Christianity made is not now in abandoning this uh, God-given hierarchical patriarchal structure as some conservative Christians are arguing. The historical mistake was then that 
these uh, patriarchal structures, Roman household codes, were taken on by what was actually a fledgling, much more radical, much more freeing uh, spirituality. So that if there is a mistake in terms of Christianity's following a social trend, as it were, it's not happening now, it happened then. That's one argument put forward by some church historians. So we are where we are. Uh, and where, where we are is that some people will find it extremely difficult to uh, refer to God as anything other than father or he. Or they may say, actually, of course, God is above gender. It doesn't matter. And then as soon as we start to speak of God as she, it, you discover that actually, it, I thought I was okay about this, but actually it does make me uncomfortable. And it's, it's so, it's, it feels quite shocking. Stereotypically, maternal care and nurture and love is attributed to God the Father. So I don't think we need jettison completely uh, in our fury, some of us, the, uh, the model of God as Father. That, that would simply be, um, I think, a kind of uh, partly what Oliver was talking about before, where we, w we might make the same mistake um, twice. But I think that there are certainly um, ways in which we should mine the Christian tradition. We don't have to make it up. It's already there. Julian of Norwich, Jesus is, as much as God is our father, Jesus is our mother. Jesus described himself as a mother hen wanting to nurture uh, the children of Israel. There are ways in which we can speak about God which are part of the Christian tradition already, which we simply ignore because we're uncomfortable about it. And my final point, I think, is then to say the reason we're uncomfortable about it, men and women often, is because in the public sphere, there is, in, in public uh, discussions about religion, there is often, uh, again, an anxiety-laden description of femininity, and it becomes something that's, that's worrying. Um, and it's not just located in men. It's located in men and women who are Christians who have simply been soaked in that, in that tradition. So women and men are, um, are you know, to be liberated from that, in my view. Uh, and if, if the church has spoken too much, perhaps, about love of the Father, then the challenge, I suppose, the equivalent challenge is whether there's too much spoken about the love of the mother in this. Yeah. So about a quarter of mothers really find it very difficult to be maternal. My own mother had her father committed suicide, her favorite brother committed suicide. She had four children under five, <laughs> which was really crazy. Uh, you know, with the, with the best will in the world, with a wonderful childhood, it would be very, very difficult to meet the needs of four children under five on your own. And... Um, and anyway, you know, she, you know, she was pretty irritable and, you know, prone to depression, and it was very difficult for her. Whereas, you know, so my experience of the, my father was much more maternal than my mother. Um, about half of women sort of tune in and tune out of, of being maternal. They, you know, uh, find it, find it okay, and they're very happy with it some of the time, but not the rest of the time. Partly going back to. Lucy's earlier point, I mean, because, because really most mothers today were brought up to be Bridget Jones. They weren't brought up to be a mother. Um, and uh, 
there is something very seriously wrong with uh, the way we try and, uh, you know, the sort of role models and ideas that we offer young women as regards what their life is about, as there is about what we offer young men. Um, and then perhaps about a quarter of women are kind of ultra-maternal, a significant proportion of whom are doing that in reaction to having felt deprived as babies, interestingly. Um, and, and, but, and another proportion of whom who simply are doing what was done to them. They were very well looked after and they're like the monkeys in the experiment I described. They were looked after very well and cuddled a lot, etc., etc. And that's just their natural reaction to having a baby. Um, so actually it's a very sort of, you know, women and babies is actually much more complicated than for the simple idea of the mother. Uh, just as actually any number of men, um, you know, I think have the potential to be very good mothers. And when I use the term mother, I definitely don't think of it as being attached to a gender. And I think at the moment, of course, you know, that important authority role of God and his role as a final arbiter of truth, of um, uh, of what is right and what is wrong obviously just has its historical roots and the fact that that's what men it, it used to be purely men who, who occupied that role in the wider society and were the top of it um, I suspect what will happen is that as time goes by and we get more and more women occupying those roles um, that we'll find it much easier um, and, however, you know, we've got an awfully long way to go because, you know, frankly, um, you know, we've probably got at least another couple of generations of uh, rather deformed uh, female role models. Um, and, you know, I don't just mean Harriet Harman and Tessa Jowell, you know, um, <laughs> that there are a lot of them in all the political parties, um, they are the, the, frequently the least um, admirable, um, uh, you know, um, representatives of their gender. The ones who get to the top tend to be, I mean, same with most of the men who get to the top two tend to be, there's a lot of scientific evidence, they tend to be personality disordered, they tend to be, nar you know, narcissists. Um, there, was a, there was a wonderful study of senior managers which compared personality disorder in them with personality disorder in a normal mental hospital and in Broadmoor, the prison for the convicted mentally insane. And on three of the 11 personality disorders, the senior managers had more personality disorder than the comparison groups, which nobody here will be, or anywhere is surprised by. Uh, you only have to look around you to see it. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> um, I'm a bit surprised by it, actually. <laughs> well, it's, it is pretty amazing. Um, Lucy, uh, someone uh, has asked for you to elaborate, and I'd like you to do so as well, on the connection that you made between love and, and grief and loss. That... Um, hmm. that powerful connection. And the, 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 the actual question asks, does love always involve sacrifice? There's a, uh, a Lebanese poet, which some of you will be uh, familiar with, Khalil Gibran, 
And there's a, a part of his book, The Prophet, that's often, or it's, it's slightly out of fashion now, but it was used at a lot of weddings, um, his, his chapter on marriage. But there's a, there's a slightly less known um, image that he uses, which I think rings, simply rings true for me, which is that he describes, um, I guess, a kind of a, a bowl being scraped out or dug out. And the deeper you have been dug out, the more capacity you have for love, is his poetic expression. And I think that's what I'm reaching for, that uh, to love is to make yourself vulnerable and to be at the mercy of another, uh, of God. To throw oneself on the mercy of God is perhaps another way of describing loving God. And the, it, is, it is therefore, I can't, I can't say inevitable, but it is almost inevitable that pain will come with that degree of vulnerability. And there's, uh, I'm sure some of you have seen um, Sister Wendy, who does those art critic uh, things on the television. But Sister Wendy spends most of her time not on television, but living as a contemplative uh, in a caravan and she spends vast majority of her life in silence. And she describes the experience of being so intensely in the presence of love, i.e. God, as being an intense joy and pain at the same time. It's almost unbearable, the way she describes it. And I think that I mean, contemplatives for me are the mountaineers of the church. They're the adventurers. They're the deep sea divers. They're the ones who kind of go and then they come back and tell the rest of us what they discovered. And I believe her, I think is all I can say, that she will have spent years uh, simply... Uh, I, I think uh, Sheila Cassidy last week used the phrase keeping company with God. But she will have spent years uh, experiencing that depth of reality which she describes as a joy and a pain at the same time. And I think we, get a, we simply get an inkling of that. We get a kind of a shadow or a hint or an echo of that in our own lives when we throw ourselves on the mercy of another, when we become at the mercy of someone else uh, because they can hurt us. That's why I link love and grief. I, I thought it was very important that you mentioned the word dependence in what you said, because love and dependence are very intimately connected. We start life 100% dependent. We'll die if somebody doesn't... Uh, physically meet our needs, but also there are many studies showing that babies often die in orphanages if they're not given any affection or any attention, personal attention. And it's really an interesting paradox that the capacity for independence only arises if there has been an adequate meeting of the infant and toddler's need for dependence. And one of the disasters of modern parenting is the, ex the, the, the extent to which parents are saying, he's got to learn to be independent as they shove him in the nursery. He's got to learn at six months, you know. Um, 
little realizing that if, if you want to create a child who's going to be clingy, stick it in you know, inadequate substitute care at six months. Whereas if you really meet its need for dependence early on, then it will be capable of independence. But as you rightly said as well, it's a messy old business, love. Um, anybody who's been married knows it. Uh, and it's obviously a very different matter from... It's, I'm fascinated by what you say about Sister Wendy and uh, people who concentrate on achieving transcendent states in, in whatever religious tradition. Um, and I suppose, you know, that's, that's wonderful. But it it's kind of reminds me of being in love. You know, being in love, I consider to be an illness. Um, the few times it's happened to me, it's, it's, it's barking. You, you totally lose the plot. Um, you, 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 you think everything about the other person is, is perfect, even their faults. You manage to somehow, oh, isn't it sweet the way you know? Um, and... Um, you know, if they're smelly or if they have horrible habits, that, that's, that's a sign of, you know, more enchantment. And um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like being on drugs. And um, I think, uh, and I don't want to, no, I think there's a distinction between that and what you're talking about with Sister Wendy, which is an attempt, you're, it's, it's transcending the whole thing. You're talking about going to another level beyond the uh, level at which most of us exist, in which we're wrestling with the problem of other people's dependence on us and our dependence on them, and the unbearability of it is really unbearable. Uh, hell is other people <laughs> um, in that sense. Um, and there's a constant struggle uh, in order for us to achieve independence, to be able to somehow work out a proper compromise with, with our intimates regarding their dependence on us and ours on them. Um, that is one thing. Being in love is another thing. The transcendence that you're talking about, the, the moving towards the light and all the rest of it, you know, all the, all the, all the as, as you say, it, it quickly turns into mystical language, you know. Um, but... Uh, but there's still a place for that, I'm convinced, for all of us in our uh, troubled, tedious, difficult day-to-day -day lives at work or at home. Um, there is such, it is really important. I mean, I do yoga in the morning and in the evening, and without it, I'd be absolutely useless, I think. Um, that, uh, you know, and, and, that's, and I don't pay enough attention to that part of myself as it is. Uh, it's, it's, um, it must be amazing to be Sister Wendy, is all I can say. <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, I, think, I think how I read what she was saying, I, I accept the word transcendence, I think she would too, but I would, I would want to modify it, because I think what she finds in that contemplative state is um, it's heartbreaking, it's deep engagement with the world as it is. And so, therefore, the kind of kenotic, the, the kenosis that theologians describe about God's love, which is this constant pouring out upon uh, the world, um, is mirrored in our uh, less 
profound attempts to pour ourselves out uh, for another. Whether that, and there are different, clearly different types of love there, parental love and being in love and uh, kind of companionship love, friendship love. And I think what she is trying to describe by saying it is an intense joy and pain at the same time is that it is, it is this unbearable sense um, of being in love with God, but also not being able to bear God's presence. It's unbearable. Yet she and other, many other contemplatives simply feel compelled, as one is when one's in love, to be in the presence of that person, can't keep away. Doesn't sound fun, does it? <laughs> no, I mean, I sort of slightly mean that. I half mean that seriously. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, the unbearableness of it. That if it's said by Lucy Winkett, you can make unbearable sound great. But unbearable Thank is you, really unbe <laughs> but unbearable is unbearable. unbearable I mean, is I'm unbearable. Just, this is a poetic way of yeah. of, of of saying that, which yeah. you know has a, has a sort of compelling thing to it. Yeah. But actually, if it's really unbearable, why on earth do we want to why do we want to be there? Well, I and I, I mean I I believe that uh, you know like there are different there are different expressions of what is one love and I, I really want to uh, maintain with Teresa Ravela there is only one love is love is love but there are different ways that we find to express that love that contemplatives will uh, will readily say that that vocation is not everyone's and you know, I, f I feel uh, slightly anxious talking about it because I'm not a contemplative but I mean and if there are contemplatives here I'd be delighted to to talk to you but if if one lives that level of contemplative life and one is committed to that then yes it doesn't sound fun um, although the contemplatives that I've met are some of the most they have that what you're talking about joy there's a joy which is uh, at the same time, uh, uh, the pain that she's talking about. So I don't think. I mean, it, it, it is one way to live, and it's a. It's both a burden and uh, a joy to do it, as far as I understand that. But it's not for everybody. It, I mean, might it might it also be to do with reality that the contemplatives or pe people who really try to go for this are taking on board the enormity of what is really the case as opposed to the la-la land that we mostly live in. Um, and it takes huge discipline and is extremely difficult to achieve. Um, I, I, it reminds me of a study that was done as to why it is that most of us can't really cope with the scientific evidence regarding what's coming around the corner as a result of the ecological catastrophe. And um, uh, it showed that a proportion of people are just deniers and simply refuse to accept the evidence at all. Uh, another big proportion of people accept it in principle but don't feel it. They can't cope with the feeling and that's most of us. So we, we, you know, we, we take our plastic bags to the supermarket or whatever but we can't actually cope with the awfulness of what's actually happening. And then a, a small proportion of people can, and those people, when they've been studied, actually go into mourning at, what, at the p death of the planet, <laughs> which is actually what we are talking about. Uh, they cry, you know, and you could say they're just sort of um, silly people, but they're not. They actually are able to tolerate 
the reality of what's happening. I can't tolerate I mean, I'm not one of those people. Um, uh, and the, the, the argument is, their argument is that if you are one of those people and you're trying to help everyone else, the first thing they have to do is to be able to tolerate the actual gassing reality of the damage that we're doing to ourselves and to our planet and to future generations. Um, those sort of people that, that you're talking about with Sister Wendy, etc., they, they are able to hang on to um, the, the, you know, the awful things in a way that most of us can't, I think. There's a very interesting um, sermon that uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave um, at the wedding of uh, John and Alison Milbank, who are um, two considerable theologians in the church, and he talked about in that sermon about the relationship between truth and love. And he says that, um, he, he talked about why truth needs love and love needs truth. And truth needs love, because without love we couldn't face the truth. It would just be too much. And love needs the truth, because otherwise love would be a fantasy. Mm. And that dance between the reality and the, mm. and, and, the, and, and I, I think that's a very important, mm. that's a very important way in which we shuttle. Um, I'm a bit of a time fascist and we're, we're, we're approaching um, eight o'clock. I wondered if we, um, Lucy, I wonder if there's anything that you want to, want to sort of round things up with and, and, and say in this. We've, we've gone all around the houses and said mm. lots of different, very interesting things. I think what, uh, simply a sentence, I think what I detect, and I don't want it simply to be a kind of commonplace, but it is something that I hear people saying a lot, <coughs> is that um, we are living in difficult times in our society with regard to an uh, imaginative and um, fulfilling definition and expression of love. And I think we have for reasons which some of which have come out this evening but uh, and which in which religion is culpable sometimes um, developed a rather skewed version of what love is uh, in a thousand pop songs and it seems to be a love that's based on anxiety about who we are and I guess that the the love that uh, I and uh, others would want to advocate is a more relaxed and confident um, expression of love, which is founded on the fact that we ourselves are loved and accepted radically as we are. I, I hadn't actually thought of it before this evening, but there might be a link between those two studies I mentioned about narcissism and women, women willing to contemplate marriage without love. Um, if you remember, it was saying that American, amongst American women, 15% um, uh, were narcissistic in the 60s and that had risen to 40% in the 90s. And there might be a connection between that. I'd never thought of it before. Uh, and, uh, and the fact that 40% in the 60s were prepared to contemplate marriage without love and only 15% were in the 90s because if they'd become much more uh, compensatorily self-loving in, in an essentially pathological way. Um, at the same time, they become hungrier for love from someone else. So there's a dreadful uh, problem, which is that 
so many, the, the, the wider social trends have directed our attention in the wrong direction. Uh, we are focused on having rather than being. We are focused on self rather than other. Uh, and all too many of us have had the kind of early experience which makes it difficult for us to not engage in me, 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 grandiose, narcissistic kind of love, uh, which means we're very lonely. Uh, and I think that I'm profoundly optimistic about what's going to happen. <laughs> I think what's going to happen is that uh, we will eventually see the light, which, is, which does have to do with politics, which has to do with us realizing that it's been an absolute fiasco, what's gone on in this country and in America and throughout the English-speaking world for the last 30 years. And I think things, the, the thing, funnily enough, the thing that will make us see the light, uh, quite possibly, you know, one could see it as almost a uh, divine intervention. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of slightly wacky American evangelicals who believe this, uh, you know, but when East Anglia goes underwater, you know, I think we might wake up and smell the coffee. We might actually suddenly say, hang on a second, do we need all this consumption rubbish? And we will, I'm totally convinced, move to a society in which there is zero growth and that we're actually glad about that because it means we're not consuming the, the, the Earth's resources um, and we can move away from our obsession with the material and, and wake up and smell the coffee, which is that we're incredibly affluent. We're so much more affluent than any society has ever been in the history of the world. Um, and we can get on with enjoying each other and get on with the stuff that life's all about, which is having fun. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for coming. Um, uh, our speakers will be um, five minutes, just a quick book signing afterwards. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Lucy Winkett, Oliver James.